Welcome to the 15th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What should our listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, this has not been a great week for our nation relative to the coronavirus. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't the virus's fault. It was just humans. In slightly more than half of the states, including large ones like Texas and Florida, the incidence of infection soared. In most, elected officials had removed restrictions and allowed large numbers of people to gather in confined locations without masks. The results were predictable. This wasn't a second wave or anything unexpected. It was the inevitable fallout for pretending a contagion like this with an R naught of close to three was gone. Phrased differently, when you eliminate mandatory masks, violate social distancing expectations, and cut back on testing, a virus that has a rate of transmission at which one infected person passes it to three others will grow exponentially. Nothing about this coronavirus is any different now than in February, March, April, or May. What's equally predictable going forward is that hospitalizations will rise in these geographies. And a few weeks later, the number of deaths will increase significantly. No one should be in the least bit surprised when it happens. Eliminating the restrictions as aggressively as was done was a predictably bad decision. In many locations, the governors are now walking it back. What is most perplexing is why these elected officials seem surprised. Why were they caught off guard by the rapidly rising numbers? Did they expect that the numbers wouldn't rise? Who were their experts? Was the magnitude just more than they expected? Why was the data so faulty? Was it politics or unconstrained denial? Or did they anticipate the reality, but couldn't live with the consequences once it happened? I don't know, but I hope they figure it out to avoid repeating the same mistakes in the future. I predict that in some locations, we'll be right back to where we were in March with inadequate critical care capacity and a shortage of ventilators come July. On the other hand, there was some positive news this week. Data released last week indicate that over 20 million Americans have been infected with the coronavirus and have recovered. That translates into a mortality rate dramatically lower than the numbers previously 
published. Of course, before getting too excited, it also means that if our only solution as a nation to the current pandemic is herd immunity, then we are a little more than 10% of the way to achieving it across the United States. I'd warn listeners to be careful when it comes to statistics about the coronavirus. When headlines describe rapidly increasing number of cases, you can't tell if that really means that more people are getting infected now than a month ago, or that we're just testing a lot more individuals and finding more people who are less symptomatic or even asymptomatic. The most recent data from the CDC says that about 10 times more Americans have been infected than the current numbers show. Assuming that's the case, doubling the number of tests could falsely indicate that the virus was spreading twice as fast when nothing had actually changed. And of course, diminished testing would be equally inaccurate, leading to the opposite conclusion. With that caution, here are the recent numbers for listeners. Positive tests in Arizona are up 77%. In Texas, 70%. And in Florida, 66%. If those numbers represent anywhere near the number of additional infected individuals, we will see a prolonged period of heightened disease as each of them passes the virus to three other people. Jeremy, the state that's most surprising to me is California. Unlike the other states, its reopening plan has been measured, and yet cases have risen by 47%. What that warns us is the extent to which social distancing fatigue now permeates our nation. Pictures of the beaches of Southern California and the bars and parts both urban and rural areas of California show complete elimination of social distancing. Last night in response, Governor Newsom closed the bars in seven counties, including Los Angeles. One step forward and two back. Finally, Jeremy, I know you're a big sports fan. It's not clear what's going to happen next. Major League Baseball reached agreement on a 60-game schedule to start the end of July, and the NBA will resume Basketball games around the same time. Large events were canceled or postponed. The New York City Marathon was canceled. The Kentucky Derby postponed. Nick Watney, the golfer, tested positive for COVID-19, and he had to withdraw from the most recent PGA tournament. The Toronto Blue Jays and Philadelphia Phillies shut their training camps due to outbreaks, and Clemson reported that 23 football players had tested positive for the coronavirus. I fear that pro sports will follow the pattern we have seen in so many areas of society. One step forward and then one back. The owners, the athletic directors, and the pro sports unions need to understand that if the practices are held and the games are begun, players will become infected. And a couple of them may become critically ill or even die. As in so many areas, this is not a risk it is an inevitability. Figure out what you're going to do when it happens before you move forward. Be transparent around the decision and stick to it once it occurs. I don't believe the owners and union leaders have done that. The virus is nothing if not consistent. Humans remain inconsistent and irrational.
You've talked about the Pareto principle and the asymmetry of death among people infected. What's the newest data? Jeremy, a distressing but educational statistic released last week was that as the number of deaths across the entire United States passed 110,000, nearly half of them, or 50,000 of those who died, were patients from nursing homes. Remember that the nursing home population is only 1.5% of Americans. Now, of course, part of the high numbers reflect the age and health status of the residents living in these facilities. But at the same time, much of the problem results from the general crowding and limited staff. In so many areas, our nation's response to this pandemic has been problematic. Failing to take aggressive action to protect the very vulnerable part of the population has been one of the most egregious errors we have made. I read recently that surveys show Americans see the health risks and the economic threats from coronavirus as similarly problematic. How do you think elected officials are viewing the two issues? I mentioned California earlier. The language of health and elected officials there has changed dramatically since early spring. A few months ago, they focused solely on minimizing the number of infections to protect lives against the coronavirus to the maximal degree. Now they seem equally reticent to retreat from reopening the economy despite a spike in hospitalization. Previously, they imposed strict shelter-in-place requirements on people to limit the disease spread. Now they continue to ease restrictions despite the higher rates of COVID-19 infection and hospitalization. Their rationale is two parts. First, they acknowledge that the economic ramifications for people is devastating and unsustainable. But second, they also point out that people are going back to their prior routines despite the overall recommendations and even the restrictions that have been put in place. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the most outspoken advocates for prioritizing avoidance of transmission over all other priorities, told the Sacramento Press Club in response to a question on the rising disease rate, quote, you don't really need to go back to the lockdown. Robbie, I know you'll be speaking at the New York Stock Exchange tomorrow. What do you plan to say? Jeremy, I remain an advocate for a middle course using, as you mentioned, the Pareto Principle to find the 20% of restrictions that we can implement to obtain 80% of the reduction in transmission that is possible. The CEOs who will be attending virtually want to have three questions answered. What should they do when it comes to reopening their businesses? What will happen economically to our nation in the future? And how will the coronavirus impact healthcare delivery in the long run? Here's a brief summary of what I will say. In response to what they should do to reopen their businesses, I plan to tell them one size can't fit all. Masks, six foot distancing, and free, easy to obtain testing 
are essential everywhere. Few will be able to return, however, to the expectations and approaches of the past. The idea of everyone showing up at the same time in the morning and leaving together in the evening, it won't happen, at least until there's a vaccine. But at the same time, it doesn't mean staying in lockdown. They can bring some employees back, particularly those whose jobs are far better done in person than virtually. And some employees can come on certain days of the week and others at an alternative time. And hopefully there will be opportunities to conduct some of the interactions and some of the meetings outside rather than in poorly ventilated conference rooms. And there'll be opportunities to avoid as much air travel as in the past. When it comes to the economy in the future, that will depend on state and national elected officials as much as the virus itself. The worst thing would be to reopen and then reclose. Neither process is as simple as throwing a switch. There are large costs involved in opening and even greater costs to say nothing about the loss of trust that comes from closing. People need clear communication education on how best to protect themselves and their families, and a comprehensive plan that addresses their healthcare concerns. I'm pessimistic this pandemic will be over for at least a year. But that doesn't mean we can't achieve relative normalcy through reasoned and scientific approaches. When it comes to healthcare in the long run, I'm optimistic that at the end of the tunnel, Healthcare will have advanced to the benefit of patients and the health of our nation. I come to that conclusion because I just don't think that our country will tolerate the cost increases of the past. The federal government will have borrowed close to $8 trillion, and they'll need to find ways to cut expenditures. Healthcare will be a prime target. States will need to balance their budget in the face of declining tax revenue and cutting healthcare costs will be high on their list. The small business owners, the ones who have not been forced to close completely, they will have depleted their savings and given the choice of expanding medical coverage or declaring bankruptcy, they will look to lower how much they pay for healthcare premiums and individuals who lost their jobs and now face reduced incomes will rebel against ever higher out-of-pocket costs. When I put the pieces together, I predict we will move in one of two directions. We could as a nation devolve into an ever more two-tier system than we have today. Cutbacks in coverage would leave many waiting for care and unable to pay for the medication and treatments they need, while those who can purchase supplemental coverage would move to the front of the line. This is the situation in many third world countries with poorly funded public insurance. Alternatively, healthcare could quickly move from fee-for-service reimbursement to one that is prepaid and capitated. Doing so would eliminate incentives to recommend medical care that's been proven to provide little benefit, and it would encourage prevention and avoidance of complications from chronic disease. In addition, it would lead to the formation of a huge number of additional integrated multi-specialty medical groups aligned with hospitals as a means to reduce cost in order to respond to the decreased revenue and higher financial risk 
that providers will be expected to take. These newly formed entities could implement approaches that were operationally more efficient and effective and embrace technology to drive down costs. Telemedicine would replace 30 to 40% of what we currently do in doctors' offices. And a combination of evidence-based practices and artificial intelligence would raise quality while making care affordable for both purchasers and patients. What's not clear is if physician and hospital leaders will seize this current opportunity or whether they will once again try to dig in their heels even more forcefully, believing that they can hold onto the past. As a follow-up, how do you think businesses are planning for the post-coronavirus era? Jeremy, a recent survey from Cooper offered some initial insights. Based on their data and what I'm hearing from business leaders across the country, I'd label the destination most of them were going is to pursue radical transformation. They're shifting their strategies from finding ever-expanding markets to taking customers from competitors. They understand this will require them to lower their prices. And to lower prices, they need to lower costs. And to do that, they're shrinking their workforce. Much of the process is through embracing artificial intelligence, robotics, and virtual tools. As one CEO told me, this is an opportunity to do in three months what we had planned to do over the next three years. It's why I don't believe any time in the near future we will see unemployment drop again to the levels it was at the start of 2020. And that will place even more pressure on healthcare as the number of people who obtain coverage through governmental programs will expand. It's why I believe it's vital for our nation to invest in addressing the social determinants of health. If we don't, the impact of these other changes on people's lives will be massive and the rising mortality that will ensue will dwarf anything the virus has inflicted. We're hearing a lot about testing and contact tracing. What are your thoughts? Jeremy, I fear the words testing and contract tracing have been used to offer a seemingly totally safe solution to the current pandemic rather than being a truly viable one. Make no mistake, providing free testing that's easily available is essential. Doing so allows people who have been exposed to the virus to find out if they have it and then to self-quarantine if the testing is positive. It's an essential first step. And letting people know that you're positive is a crucial second step so that they don't pass the virus on during their pre-symptomatic phase or as a result of an asymptomatic illness. However, the idea that as a nation, we can identify all the people at risk with 30 or 40,000 new positive tests a day. And that, by the way, implies there's 100,000 or 200,000 newly infected people. That concept to me is preposterous. Even in New York City, that hired 3,000 people to do contact tracing, 
only 35% of the over 5,000 people who tested positive were willing to provide information about close contacts the previous week. The countries around the globe that have been successful have been far more willing to require people to disclose this type of information. As an example, in South Korea, people at weddings, funerals, and nightclubs are required to write down their names and telephone numbers, and authorities use them to identify potential contacts through cell phone and credit card information. This approach can help reduce the spread, even with a fraction of the infected people going unidentified, the virus persists, and then it spreads. Jeremy. Listeners have loved your historical perspectives from the last two shows. Public health measures across centuries have sometimes proven incredibly successful, like the city officials in London who removed a handle from a contaminated water source in 1854 and ended the Broad Street cholera epidemic. What should we learn from these public health successes? The uh, Broad Street cholera epidemic is actually one of the most important events in medical history. And uh, John Snow, the doctor whose detective work essentially discovered the source of the outbreak was from infected fecal material contaminating the Broad Street well, uh, is actually considered to be the father of epidemiology. Um, Back then, it was normal for people to discard their fecal matter out in the streets. There wasn't a sewage system. I mean, human feces was everywhere. Uh, the place was absolutely disgusting by modern standards, and cities were not the safest place to live from a health perspective. Cholera was an especially terrifying disease uh, that started with a stomach ache and diarrhea and then quickly turned into uncontrollable vomiting and diarrhea, and people could die from dehydration is in as quickly as one day. Um, at the time, no one took Snow seriously or believed his findings. Um, his work actually taught people that miasma was not the cause of the epidemic, but germs, uh, which at the time very few people believed in. And his work eventually led to the modern sanitation movement. Um, I think the biggest takeaway from this is to trust good science and pay attention to what the top scientists are saying. And with, as with any epidemic, cleanliness and sanitation are so important. So, you know, I would say, you know, just be extra careful about hand washing, not touching your face, uh, things like that. Jeremy, in contrast, during the plague, elected officials assumed that dogs were transmitting the disease and had them put to death. As a consequence, the rat population, the true source of transmission, expanded and the disease became an overwhelming epidemic. How can we avoid a similar error today? The plague, or the Black Death as it is also known, is the deadliest pandemic in human history. Uh, it killed somewhere between 75 and 200 million people. Um, it was actually spread from fleas that lived on rats and then would bite humans. And then it was also spread, you know, human to human via fleas or via the ways viruses traditionally spread. Uh, dogs would chase, eat, kill or whatever these rats and keep the rat populations down. And then when they killed off the dogs, the rat population exploded 
thus making the plague spread that much faster and further. I would say the biggest takeaway from this event in modern times with COVID-19 is to watch out for bad science because it can make things much worse. I think of, you know, anti-vaxxers and people who are having infection parties so that they can have and get over the disease um, or people who take the fake drugs that are being promoted online as the cure-alls and that they say that can help prevent it and then go out in the world assuming they're immune to the coronavirus or even the people that think it's a complete hoax. Um, We know a lot more about coronavirus than we used to, but we still have to be on the lookout for bad science or bad advice. I mean, as we saw during the Black Plague, obviously they didn't know any better, but bad science can have major, major consequences. It feels like we're at a tipping point when it comes to the coronavirus, Robbie. What do you see happening next? Jeremy, I concur that we are a transition point. But I would focus on our nation, our elected officials, and the people, not the virus. The coronavirus will be with us for a long time. It is eerily constant. Humans are the ones who are unpredictable. We need to decide how we want to respond to the current threats, including the ones that are medical, economic, and social. To date, our response has been about a third unmitigated fear, a third complete denial, and maybe a third fantasy and hope. That's not a great prescription for success. On one hand, a recent survey from Axios Ipsos show that eight in 10 Americans are worried about a second wave of viral infections. As you and I have said on this show, it won't be a second wave, but an exacerbation of the first. But regardless of what we call it, the likelihood of it happening is incredibly high. At the same time, in the same survey, one in three people would refuse to shelter at home for even two weeks if asked to do so again. And we're seeing mental health issues from social isolation becoming apparent. A study from Wuhan, China, showed that 23% of elementary school students reported depression and anxiety in a paper published in JAMA. We'll need to decide about schools come this fall, and even before then, how much are we willing to do to save the hundreds of thousands or millions of businesses currently teetering on bankruptcy? And what about the jobs that will get lost? A variety of experts have talked about the next two weeks as vital in the battle against the coronavirus. I believe they're wrong. Not because the next two weeks won't pose huge dangers. It will. But because the focus is too myopic. The threats will be with us for a year or more, not 14 days. Most people don't want to face that reality. Our nation will experience dozens more short-term crises. They won't be about the infectiousness or lethality of the virus. Both are a given. They'll be whether we can be open and honest as a nation about this virus and agree on a common strategy that best balances the various risks To safely navigate these rapids, we will need a clear strategy and a specific approach that our country will follow with vigilance, focus, and consistency. It can't be one that we announce today and then reverse a month later. 
And as part of the process, Americans must recognize and acknowledge the consequences that will ensue, the ones that are predictable. We can't continue to tell ourselves and pretend maybe they won't happen. We'll see. Things will get better. Accepting the truth is the only way to keep from panicking and eroding the confidence and trust of our nation. I hope we will get back onto the right track. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and in all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like this show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message via Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening and have a great day.